your wonderful prompting in our lives. Holy Spirit, we're grateful for your presence. Holy Spirit, we're grateful for the little pennies that have dropped, the torch lights that have shone on areas that we had need to, to see and be aware of. Lord, the little gems of truth that has added to the truth we had that has now made it clearer for us to see our way forward. Holy Spirit, I thank you for all that you have begun and I thank you for the truth that what you have begun is what you complete. And so Lord, we, we give you thanks that we are a work in motion. We are a piece of artwork that is still being painted. I thank you, Lord, that there are ways forward that before today we knew not of that you are revealing to us and will continue to do so. I thank you that each day you are moulding us and shaping us into our Eden image, Father. Eden image. Lord, I thank you that there are bright days ahead. I thank you that there are contexts that we've not yet found ourselves in that are waiting for us, already written, planned, prepared for us to walk into. God, I thank you for that. I thank you for the truth that has dropped into our spirits that will take root, become a part of who we are, exponentially change us from the inside out, that we might never be the same again and neither will those around us because we are a good news message that others are reading. So God, I thank you for all that you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Taking you on this progression of thought from understanding the difference between the truth and the facts and then taking ourselves out of unhealthy contexts and finding new ones to, to place ourselves in to bring out the best, the extraordinary, the wonderful within us, that we were meant to go straight to the lives. <laughs> I love that thought. I love Nico on that film clip. You can. Old people can. Yeah. If you can see it, you can do it. <laughs> Go, Nico. Good one. I, I so agree. I want to start this afternoon by reading you uh, a little passage that Paul um, spoke to a, 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 an audience in, in, in Ephesus. And in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, he says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I've heard this preached um, many times, and often the tact has been, um, it, it, it's been, with a theme of predestination, that you know, God has prepared things beforehand for us that we should walk in them. And they've used this tact of what God has already done, this predetermined, pre prepared sort of theme that comes out of this verse. And I want to look at it in a different way this afternoon. I want to have a look at the two main words that are in this passage. And the two main words are workmanship. We are his workmanship is the is the main crux of what Paul is teaching this crowd in Ephesus this day. We're his workmanship. 
We're prepared, that we're made in Christ Jesus for good works, for good works. And anyone who says that Christianity is not a works-based um, religion is, is daft. Faith is not works-based. Christianity is. Hospitals don't get built. Orphans don't get fed. The hungry, you know, they don't get fed. The needy don't get their needs met. You know, schools don't get built. Churches don't get built. People without works, you got to work. The lights in this building don't turn on all by themselves. we got to work to make that happen. So are we a works-based? Well, absolutely, yeah. Like, we want people to work. Come on, let's mobilise an army. Let's get to work. Absolutely. Faith is free. Everything else is just hard work from then on in. So, and, and it just becomes a little more effortless if we understand how we're created. It just becomes a little easier to... Families don't get built without hard work. Relationships don't survive without hard work. Your kids don't grow up all by themselves. Uh, we wish they would sometimes, but they don't. <laughs> and, and so we, we work hard for these things. But if we understand how we've been created and what we've been created for, it helps that work to become actually special and privileged and precious to us. So I want to have a look at that thought today. We're going to begin with what impacts on our identity and end up with a simple way to, uh, to view or redefine our identity. And I'll try and keep them as close together as possible. So first of all, Ephesians 2, that um, the word, the word um, workmanship is actually the word poema or poema in, in, the, in the Greek. And it means it's where we get our English word poem from. It's where we get our English word poem from. And the thought is this, that we've been designed and produced by an artisan. Something that the Greeks used poema when something was designed or produced by an artisan. It carries the theme of rhyme, reason, balance, and symmetry. In other words, we could say it like this. We are his poem, created in Christ Jesus for good works that we should walk in them. We're his poem. We've been designed with symmetry and purpose and balance, designed by a master craftsman, an artisan, who's created us on purpose, with purpose and for purpose, for good works that we should walk in them. You know, this, this Christian um, cliche that we often use, and it goes a little bit like this, oh, you just need to know your identity in Christ. Like, if someone says that to me one more time, I'm going to smack somebody, you know? <laughs> it's like... Yeah, okay, got that. But we have to navigate a whole lot of other things in life. You know, it's not as easy as that. It's almost like saying to a, a drug addict, oh, we just need to stop taking drugs. It's like, yeah, well, I would if I could. What if I knew how to? How to? Like, I've got to rewire my whole brain to do that. And, and are you willing to walk the journey with me to do that? If not, don't say that to me anymore. Not, you know, like, that's not helpful. So really, there's a whole lot of things that we say, you just need to know your identity in Christ. Well, yeah, it's not as simple as that. You and I navigate our identity variably, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's quite difficult for of, of many of us to define who we are. And I'm going to help you do that a little bit this afternoon. I'm going to help you do that so that it becomes very personal to you. And I'm believing that this moment is going to be very powerful for you. So I want you to raise your expectations with this, all right? Because I don't want you to leave here with the ho-hum, that was nice. Otherwise, this was a waste of time. 
I want you to raise the bar on your expectation for this and get yourself ready because you're going to do some work this afternoon. And the work is bringing together some of the thoughts that we've been carrying today, culminating them into, into a session that's going to help you redefine who you are right now and how that's going to be expressed. You're going to put words around this today. And it's got, you're going to take it home as a little bit of a mantra. You're going to take this home as a little bit of a, an elevator speech, if you like. And you're going to look at it and remind yourself that you have been stamped with the uniqueness of the master craftsman, the master artisan who has made you to be a poem, an expression of rhythm and rhyme and purpose for your situation where you are uniquely with the life that you've got in the environment that you're in going to help bring expression to that today, okay? Here's two mistakes we make about identity. Here's two mistakes we make. The first mistake we make is that we often attach our identity to a role or a function or a job, okay? I've been through, and, and you may identify with this, but I've been through a bit of an identity crisis when I left a career and went into ministry. So I left everything that I'd worked for and studied for that I knew back the front and, and, and back again and where I was known and, and, and what people knew me for, to, to then moving into ministry where no one knew who I was and it wasn't a tried and proven thing and I had to start from scratch like everyone else and, and it was a bit of an identity crisis. It's like, well, I was well known over there and no one knows who the heck I am over here and it's, it's a little bit of a journey to sort of get, well, I don't know who I am anymore. I went through a bit of an identity crisis when, when my husband of 17 years left. You know, I missed being Mrs., I did. And I didn't know who I was. I, I, I had to start again. I, I, I had all my, all my identity tied up, firstly, in a function, and then secondly, in a relationship. And when we tie our identity up in a relationship with somebody else, you know, he's my better half. Really? Well, you're a pretty poor show then, aren't you? You're really like a weaker half? Or how do you get to be a weaker half? If you're half and half, aren't you the same half? Or I don't understand that language. But And half and half in a relationship doesn't make a whole. It just makes another half. So, like, you don't want to come into a relationship with both of you, one and one. That's sort of a better equation. It's like, it's my better half. Or, you know, um, it's my soulmate. And all of those sorts of things. Well, that, that's really lovely. But we need to go into relationships being, understanding that we're whole people. And we're bringing wholeness into a relationship. Then relationship can flourish when two whole people come into a relationship understanding that they both bring a sense of wholeness to this. When we um, tie our identities up to functions or jobs or people, the problem is when those things change, everything's up for grabs. When those things change, it leaves us confused. It leaves us not knowing who we are. Where do we go from here? What's my purpose in life? What, what have I really been designed to do? If we, here's one thing I know. If we can't de de define who we are, someone else will always be ready to do it for us. If you can't define who you are, there'll always be, some, always be someone close to you who's willing to tell you who you are, what you should do, what holes you should squeeze into, how you should perform, how you should behave, how you should act, how you should speak. There'll always be someone pretty close willing to tell you how to do those things. So if we're not sure, others will do it. And how many of you have been in the situation where you've spent a great deal of your life trying to squeeze through other people's holes? Squeeze into the expectations that others have had over you. Anyone in here? This means yes. Yeah? Same. Me too. I have as well. Tried to squeeze into, into, into holes and shapes that other people have set for us. And it's flipping frustrating, isn't it? 
And it's soul destroying because it's like I'm trying really hard, but I don't fit. I'm trying to be who you tell me I'm supposed to be, but it just doesn't come naturally. Just is hard work. I can't do it anymore. And it's like it's so soul destroying and it's exhausting trying to do that, is it not? It's exhausting. Anyone familiar with the Missy Higgins song? Can we go to that Missy Higgins song? So it, you might remember it, actually. I just, um, I just looked at it up on YouTube. And um, some of you might know this song. You'll remember it if I play it. I didn't actually load it onto the system. But um, if you have a listen, you'll remember it. I'll turn it up. Otherwise, I'll have to sing it for you. <laughs> That'll be fun. <laughs> Remember? How do I do that? He left a card of our soap and a scrubbing brush. Looks to an officer to use this down to your bones. Remember that? And before I knew why I had shiny skin and I felt easy being clean like him, I thought this one knows better than I do. So I'd fit. Tried to squeeze me like a triangle, trying to squeeze me through a circle. He pushed me so I'd fit. I've been there. I've been there. If you don't know who you are, someone else will always try and tell you who you are. Someone will always try and fit you into their mould of life, their mould of how life should look according to their philosophy. But Paul tells us that we're his workmanship, his poem, uniquely created in perfect balance and symmetry by the great artisan himself for good works that we we, not someone else, we should walk in them. Not walk into someone else's stuff, but walk in our stuff according to who we are and how we've been made. And here's the thing about identity. We navigate it personally, on a personal level, and we navigate it universally. In other words, we navigate it personally. We, we work out what are our core values. What are, the val what are the values in my life? And I'm not just talking about moral and ethical values or Christian values. I'm talking about what are the values that you've got of family, of work, job, um, um, finances, uh, trying to sort out your, your time, how you use your time, your time management, all of those things. You work out your own core values on those things. Your own vision is your vision, your own beliefs, traditions, family expectations. All of those things are very personal. You work those out. They're yours. No one can tell you how to do that. And no one can tell you that it should look different because they're yours. They're not theirs. They're yours. So we work those out on a personal level. Then we work them out on a universal level. In other words, there will be things like your cultural heritage. That's a bigger picture, isn't it? We're used to doing things culturally this way. And so you navigate that and you work out how that looks. Um, historical frameworks, where we come from. 
our filters of thinking. Everyone's got their own filter of thinking, and that's made up of how we were brought up, how, who our friends were, um, what we believe about the media, how we, how we learned things. All of those things build a filter, and we all look at life and even the scriptures through those individual filters that we see life through. And then there's uh, st- community, state or nationally imposed roles, opportunities, gender expectations, all of those things. So we navigate our identity personally and also on these big, larger, universal scales. And they're, they're said to be very reflective of our culture. So culture plays a big part in setting who we are, establishing who we are as a, as a, as a woman in our own identity. We're both influenced by our culture and in turn we influence culture. So it goes two ways. It's like a big circle. We're influenced by it and then we influence it by the way we behave back. There are good and bad things about culture. Here's the bad thing about culture. A bad thing about culture is that it's set by continued behaviour that is considered acceptable or true for a community over a long period of time so that it becomes accepted. Because of that, it's extremely hard to change. I'm going to say that again. It's set by continued behaviour that is considered acceptable or true for a community over a long period of time so that it becomes accepted. It's got nothing to do whether that behaviour is right or wrong. It's got everything to do with if that behaviour is allowed to continue. If that behaviour, right or wrong, whatever it is, is allowed to continue over a long period of time, it becomes accepted by the majority, therefore it becomes part of our community. Because it's established over a long period of time, it becomes very hard to change. Very hard to change. Right now, we're looking at issues in our, in our nation about same-sex marriage. You know why it hasn't happened overnight? Because culture has said that it looks different and it's been set over a long period of time. That's why the dispute. It's taking a long time to change that. For those who want it to change, it hasn't been easy for them because culture has set it according to what has been acceptable over a long period of time. You get that? That's the bad news about culture. It's very hard to change. The good news is that it's a social construct, a social construct which means it's been set by people. If it's been set by people, then it can be changed by people. Okay, so culture is hard to change because it's established over a long period of time, but it's always set by people, so it means it could be changed by people. So it's not impossible to change. You can change culture. Neither Jesus nor Paul tried to directly address or change culture. Did you know that? Neither Jesus nor Paul directly tried to change or address culture. Paul didn't ever confront an audience and say, get rid of your slaves. Haven't you heard the message of Jesus? We're all one in Jesus Christ. There's no Jew or Gentile or male or female or or slave or free man. We're all one in Jesus. Get rid of it. He didn't ever say that. What did he do? He said, here's how I want you to treat your slaves. I want you to treat them like you would everybody else. That was radical for Paul to say that because they were not treated like everyone else. But because it was a culture, he couldn't just come in and wave his finger and say, don't do it, because that culture had been set over hundreds, nine thousands of years. So that was never going to change overnight. So Paul didn't come in and directly try to address culture and change it. 
What did Paul do? In fact, what did Jesus also do? They addressed people's hearts. It's transformed hearts that change culture. Didn't, Didn't directly address the culture. He addressed the heart of every individual. And it's a transformed heart that will eventually change culture. Here's where we've got it wrong. We all want to make a difference. We all want to make a change in the world. But we get it wrong because we often try to change culture by placarding or demonstrating about what we're against. We attack the negative behaviours. Jesus and Paul actually didn't do that. They actually looked for the good. They looked for the Eden order. And they talked about that in people's lives. And they presented that. History has shown us that real change, real reform comes from demonstrating what we're for by behaving in atypical and positive ways. That will address negative behaviour. Isn't that interesting? So history has shown us that and so, so do the um, sociologists also show us that the best way to impact culture is by behaving in a way that's beneficial for the culture not placarding against what we're against and what is wrong with culture. Social sciences are also telling us at the moment that people cannot change culture, but people can change themselves and help change others, and it's changed people who change culture, which is just another way of saying Paul and Jesus didn't address culture. They addressed people's hearts, and it's transformed hearts that change culture. Good, hey? So... In in our churches today, instead of us addressing the issues that we think are the big issues and standing against them, why don't we find what's good in our culture? Why don't we find what's working? It's almost like what we said last session about you want to to talk about marriage, we we, we go straight to the divorce passages. You know, we want to talk about liberation and freedom and this beautiful uh, uh, beginning that that God created the world in and the premise that that that, that represented. And we go straight straight, straight to the sin passage. That doesn't make any sense, does it? So instead of doing that, we go straight for what God has provided as the premise, the baseline. What is good? What is pure? What is praiseworthy? What is virtuous? What does is, what is, what is God represent in this? What is the disposition of Christ in this? What does that look like? And present that. So people don't change culture. Transformed hearts change culture. We're not here to save the world. We're here to change it. Tolstoy said it's not the few big things that have changed the world, but it's the infinitesimally small things and small acts that make a change in the world. Okay, so transformed hearts change culture. How does that happen? Well, it's because people with transformed hearts begin to see themselves differently. It's true, right? Before Christ, I saw myself this way. I saw the world this way. After Christ, I saw myself this way. And I see the world this way. Transformed hearts see themselves differently. So others are impacted differently. So their beliefs change. So their behaviours change. And so ultimately, culture changes. See how it works? These positive exchanges happen from a transformed heart. My heart gets transformed. I see myself differently. So then I behave differently, which means others are impacted by my behaviour. Because they're impacted by my behaviour, their belief changes. Because their belief changes, their behaviour changes. Because their behaviour changes, 
culture then begins to change because new behaviours are being introduced into a culture. Do you see how it works? It's behaviour, it's demonstration, it's transformation that makes the difference. But the problem for us often is that you and I get caught up in really negative identity cycles that keep us looking more like what we talked about in our first session, the kingdom of darkness sort of thinking. We get caught up and trapped and stuck in negative identity cycles, thinking about ourselves, that we often don't operate out of a transformed heart or a kingdom of light, infected heart. We're actually operating out of something that's really quite dark and, 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 and not according to how God's created us, certainly not the, not the exquisite, um, uh, incredible, transformed uh, context that God expects us to be in, certainly not that. And so often we get caught in these negative identity cycles and, and this is where we get stuck and this is where the good news ceases to be a good news story on our lives and this is where people stop being impacted by our lives. So let's have a look at these. Oh, here we go. Already up there. Identity cycle. And it looks a little bit like this. Now, this is not a counselling session. This is not comprehensive. This is a dumb it down, really small, very quick overview of this. Not comprehensive by any means, but very simplified. This is how it sort of looks. It starts out with how I view myself, but it actually doesn't start there at all. Because how I view myself is, has already been impacted by what others have said about me, how I've grown up, how I've viewed life, my experiences, what's happened to me. All of those things go into making how I view myself. But we're going to start at this point just to make it simple. How I view myself will determine and impact how I behave or act. How I behave or act will then impact on how others view me or see me or make a judgment about me. How others make a judgment about me or see me will then impact on how they treat me or interact with me. How they treat me or interact with me will then impact even further on how I view myself. You see how that happens? And we get stuck right there because it just ends up being this cyclic thing, looking more like a Hindu religion. We're trapped in a circle and we can't get off it. And, um, and we're just there and we're just going around the circle and we're impacted constantly by these phenomenon. So it might look like this. If I had a really low self-view of me, if I've been hurt and undermined and I've never healed from these things and I have a really low view of my value and my worth, that's how I see myself, I'm going to behave in ways that might look like this. It might look reserved. It might look like I'm not really going to join in because I'm not really sure about what you think about me, so I probably won't join in. I might stay back. I'm not going to help out because, you know, everyone else is doing the job and they don't really need me. And um, I'm probably not going to be any overt about anything that I think I'm good at because I don't really think I'm good at anything. And um, I I'm going to hold back. I won't get involved. And I've probably really got nothing to offer anyway. So that's how I think about myself. Because I think that way, it, it impacts on how others, how I behave or act. So I'm, I'm behaving in a way that's um, excluding myself from community. I'm, I'm, I'm dwelling on the borders. I'm, I'm a margin dweller. I'm quiet, I'm non-interactive, -in and I'm not participating in community. 
So I will act that way because I already think that way about myself and it's a safer place to be. So I'm going to act that way. Because I act that way, others are going to look at me and go, don't ask her, she never helps anyway. Like, she's disinterested, she's lazy, she's self-centred, she's never willing to help anyway. Well, she's got nothing to offer, so don't worry about it. You know, she's never going to come. We've always asked her and she never comes anyway and, you know, don't worry about it. So it's already impacted on how others view me. And I might be crying out inside, that's not who I am, but I'm trapped in this cycle. And people think about me this way, but that's not who I am. But what you don't realise, that's what you're demonstrating to them. They've picked that up because you've demonstrated that, true or not, you've demonstrated it. So that's what they're thinking about you. Because they think about you that way, they're going to treat you that way. In other words, when something's going on, they're not going to ask you because you never show up anyway. They're not going to ask you because they don't think you're interested. Um, you're going to be overlooked. You're going to be forgotten. You're going to... Who, who in this room has been, uh, um, as a young person on Valentine's Day, been the only one not to get a Valentine's Day card? It's like, seriously, it's, isn't that the worst place to be? Um, <laughs> And we get stuck in these cycles because no one loves me, you know. So we get stuck in these cycles. And other people start to treat us according to how we've behaved. But that came from what we first thought about ourselves. So we get trapped in this cycle. And because people marginalise us and leave us out and don't include us and think those things about us, that impacts further on how I think about myself. So I go, see, I am like that. See, I am worthless. See, I have nothing to offer. And so we're stuck in this ridiculous cycle of thinking. And women are the worst at it. We, um, we do it all the time. But we're, we've got very soft hearts, very impressionable hearts, and hearts that are very much connected to our emotions and memories. And, and so we hold on to things too deeply sometimes and for too long sometimes. And we find ourselves stuck in this cycle and we wonder how we can't break out of it. And it's not a personality transplant that you need. It's not that. It's actually you just need to break open this cycle. Break it open and see the truth that's caught up in there that you can't see. There's a gem. There's gold in there that you haven't been able to see. We need to crack this cycle, break it open, and set you free from that so that you can begin to think about yourself differently, behave differently so that others see a different side of you so they treat, yourself, treat you differently so that you can think about yourself on higher levels so that you can get back in community and start doing your life again. The church needs you. You can't be on the sidelines. There's no excuse. Do you know what? I used to be a really shy girl. And um, I had nothing to offer. You know, one of those wallflowers, just nothing to offer. And I didn't want to open my mouth because I just had nothing to say anyway. And if I did say it, I'd make a fool of myself. And then people would think I was really nuts or stupid. Or So it's better just to shut up. And the more I didn't say anything, the more people thought I was disinterested, you know, or... You know, she's, she's just into herself, you know. And it was like, so it's not true, but I couldn't break out of it. But do you know what shy says? I used to think I was shy. And do you know what shy is? Here's the raw reality. Brutal. I know it's brutal, but true. Shy is this. Shy says, I'm more concerned about what I think you think about me than what I actually have to offer you. <gasps> brutal. That's harsh. But true. If you're shy... It's like I'm more concerned about what I think you think about me than what I really have to offer you. Wow. That's brutal, hey? But it's very true because we're stuck in this identity cycle and it's always caught up with what other people think about us and how they've treated us. 
and it's gone back in to reinforce what we think about ourselves. We need to break open this horrible circle, this cycle that traps us. Okay, so what if we slipped another impactor into the circle? What if we put another equation to this? What if we cracked this thing by adding something that's higher and above this thing? We've been talking about the higher law of truth this morning, that there's a truth and there's the facts, but there's a higher law of truth at work where the facts don't always end up being the truth when we're in Christ because there's a higher law of truth. What if we added an impactor into this, and I've called this the quorum Dio. This is Latin for the presence of God. Okay, the quorum Dio, the presence of God. Living before the presence of God. In Psalm 45, it says, Psalm 40, verse 5, your thoughts towards me are too many to be numbered. Too many to be numbered. In other words, there is a constant presence of God in you. How can you be shy and retiring if there's a constant presence of the light, life, and God within you, surging, pumping, that, that flame ready, to, ready for the lid to be lifted to it, for it to burn. It's not possible to be filled with the Spirit of God, to live in this quorum Dio and, and still be retiring, still be living on the sidelines, still be marginalising yourself, still be not, not participating in community. It's not possible, people. We have to ask ourselves the question, why am I still there? Why is this not, why am I still who I, we're caught in a cycle and we need to get out of it. And the only way we can get out of it is we need to lift the lid and allow the ceiling to be the presence of God. The, the, in full, the, the infilling, the fullness of the presence of God within us changes and transforms us so that we crack this cycle and we start to see ourselves differently. Psalm 33, 15 says, God looks on all the inhabitants of the earth. He fashions their hearts individually and he considers all their works. I love that. He fashions their hearts individually. Every single one of you are the poem of God. His workmanship created uniquely and individually as a poem. Is there any poem alike? Is there any poem exactly the same? No, there's not. Every poem has its own rhyme, its meter, its rhythm. Every poem has its own context. Every poem has its own genre. Every poem is different. You are the workmanship, the poema of Jesus Christ. His workmanship, from, but the great artisan, the great poet has written your story. You are uniquely different from everyone else and you're created for good works that you should walk in them. In other words, whatever it is that's good in your world, find it and walk in it. Well, I'm still trying to find out the good things that God's prepared for me beforehand that I should walk in them. Idiot, find, look around you. There's a lot of good things. Those are the good things. Find those and walk in them. Those are the things. They're already there. You already know them. Look around you. There's good things there already made for you. Walk in those things. Which one? I don't care. Which one? I'm looking for the one thing. There's not one thing. There's a myriad of things. But I just want to know the one thing that God's called me to. He's called you to thousands of things. There's thousands of assignments for you all through life. There's a wonderful array of opportunities for you. There's a million things. Don't wait for the one thing. God's going, seriously, uh, you're tiring me and I'm the eternal one and I'm tired. It's like, seriously, it's all around you. Look for the good things and walk in the... 
But which ones? The ones that you're wired to do. I don't know which ones I'm wired to do. Which ones bring you joy? Which ones bring you delight? Which ones push your buttons? Which one are you wired for? Do those. They're the ones. They're the good things. Don't wait to find something. Don't wait for me to drop something in your lap. They're already there. Which ones do you love? Find those and do those because I've wired you to do them. And nobody else will do them as good as you because it's your world, your life, your circumstances, your family, your uniqueness. Find them and delight yourself in them. Knock yourself out. Have a ball. Go straight to the lives (laughs) and enjoy. I love that. We all have skills according to the way we're wired. (laughs) We all have gifts according to our God-sized capacity. We're all unique according to God's skilled workmanship. And we all have mandates, purposes and works waiting for us to put our uniqueness stamp on. When we're transformed from stuck and limited identities, our world is transformed as a result. When we're transformed from being stuck in these identities, the world is transformed as a result. Acknowledging that he has fashioned me individually. I'm his workmanship. I'm created for good works that only I can accomplish. So impacts my view of myself. So changes how I see myself and the world around me. Remember, a transformed heart is what transforms culture, changes culture. But a transformed heart only happens when we can break out of that identity crisis, that identity cycle. The only way we do that is we crack it open by putting the God sealer over us, saying that I have the quorum Dio, the living presence of God dwelling within me, his uniqueness stamped on my DNA. I am created and purposed for things that I should walk in and put my uniqueness stamp on. Isn't that great? That's the truth of how God's created us all. Okay, so we're going to do something now. We're going to do an activity, and you've got a little handout. Hopefully, has everyone got one? Let's hand those out now. They're on their way? Great. So we're going to give you a little handout, and we're going to do an activity. And we're going to culminate all this into... On the first page, you'll see the identity cycle that we often get trapped in. And I want you to turn it over, and we're going to answer some questions in a moment. We're going to answer some questions about ourselves. And we're going to try and wrap some language and some thinking around our uniqueness. And then we're going to share them with each other. Okay. Okay, everyone Everyone got a handout? Fabulous. If you need a pen, there's a few coming. If you need a pen, don't wait for it to come to you. Run and grab one and keep this moving. Okie dokie. Here's how it works. 
Everyone got their hand out? Okay. If you turn it over, turn, turn it over so that you're not facing the blue side, and turn it over. We're going to start by asking five questions. These five questions are very powerful because only two are about you. The other three are about others. These, these five questions are very powerful because they're going to make you think. Now, I don't want you to meditate on this for the next 20 minutes. I don't want this to be, you need thinking music for this. But I want you to just think about it and then write something down, okay? So don't start yet. But the five questions are these. Who are you? Well, that's a simple one. You're going to write your name. And do you know what's powerful about that? You're actually owning the fact that you have a name that signifies who you are. Do you know that was really important for me when I went through a crisis in my life that I reclaimed, um, I reclaimed the name Deborah. I didn't want to be her. When I went through my crisis, it was like, my parents named me for a reason after Deborah in the Bible, and I just thought I was a complete failure. I didn't even like Deborah in the Bible. She's like, well, whoopee-doo. You know, I don't want to be her. My life has just gone down the toilet, and, and I don't want to be her anymore. And it was, it was really an identity crisis. And I had to come to a point where I reclaimed who I was. I had to reclaim my name and stand up for myself and say, I'm going to be proud of who I am. I'm going to be proud of my name, proud of my heritage, and proud of who I am. So writing your own name is actually a very powerful thing. So we're going to write your, you're going to write your own name. Who are you? That's a simple one. That's a no-brainer. You don't have to think about that one. You're going to write your own name. Now, what do you do? Okay, what do you do? So you might say, well, I'm a school teacher. Instead of saying you're a school teacher, you might say, I teach children between the ages of whatever, whatever, um, to help them understand or learn this, depending on what your specialty is. So you're going to elaborate a little bit about what you do. If you're, um, if you're a shopkeeper, you might say, well, I, um, I, serve, I serve people each day and, I'm, I, and I offer them things that they have need of during the day. So you might express it in a way that brings value to what you do. Brings value to what you do. Is that, you're starting to get that? Brings value to what you do. Then you're going to answer, who do you do it for? Who do you do it for? Well, I do it for, um, if you're a teacher, for young children. Um, I'll give you an example in a moment. What do they want or need? Well, they need to be educated. They need to have learning and understanding. Number five, how do they change or transform as a result of what you give them? Well, they grow, they pass their exams, and they move on to the next level, and I've helped them get there. That's a very simplified way of, of answering that question. We're going to have a look at some examples. When I ask some people about these questions, I'm going to show you some examples so that you can, it will help you to answer those questions yourself. So can we go to the next PowerPoint? And, okay, so I asked a publisher. I asked a publisher, and this is what he said. I help people make decisive decisions to get their greatest work in the world. So he didn't just go, I'm a publisher, I publish books. He said... I help people make des decisive decisions to get their greatest work into the world. You see how that changes the value for him? 
It changed the value enormously by how he described what he did. I asked a fashion designer, and she said, I design women's clothes so that fashion is affordable for all women. It just brought huge value to what she does. I asked an author. He said, I write books for children so they fall asleep at night and have sweet dreams. See how he thought about that? It brought value to who he was and what he did. He's found one of those good works in his world, and he's walking in it. And he's just described it in a way that reminds him there's value to that. His uniqueness stamp on that brings value to that. I asked a sales assistant, and he said, I help people choose what they want in that moment to make life that little bit easier. Isn't that awesome? I choose, I help people choose what they want in that moment to make life a little bit easier. Or he could have said, I'm a sales assistant. But he didn't because he recognised I am this uniqueness. There's uniqueness stamped on me and I bring value to people's world so therefore I need to value who I am and what I do. Is there another one? I've got some more um, examples. Can we have a look? Is there another more examples? Okay, primary school teacher said this, I nurture, encourage and positively guide little lives so that their time away from home is memorable and life-changing. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that lovely? What value that's brought to themselves and their understanding of what they do is so unique and so important. A kids' church leader said this, I exude light, love and fun to young lives so as they navigate the difficulties ahead, they'll defer back to that permanent mark of Jesus left on them. What a beautiful way of saying, oh, I'm just a kids' church leader. I'll just help out in kids' church. I don't know. I exude light, life and fun to young lives so that as they navigate the difficulties ahead, they'll defer back to that permanent mark of Jesus left on them. I asked an at-home mum, and she says, I love, provide, umpire, and tutor my children so that they will become independent and responsible citizens who understand the power of generosity, acceptance, and love. Great statement. I'm just a mum. No, 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 no. Way more than that. A retired person. This is awesome. He said, with one eye on the past and one on the future, and my feet firmly planted on today, I draw from my well of experience to help bring guidance, wisdom, encouragement, and colour to whomever fortuitously collides with my world. That's a piece of poetry right there, isn't it? That's a piece of poetry right there. So can you see, are you starting to get the picture? Are you starting to get the, who are you? What do you do? I'm a sales assistant. What do you do? I'm a kids church leader. What do you do? So have a think about for a moment, what do you do? Pick something and then start to write what it is that you do. It's going to give you a minute to do that if you haven't already done that. What do you do?
Here's what happened to me when I went for my daily walk around the lake near me. I live across the park, live across the road from a park and a lake, and one morning I went out for my walk and I saw two councilmen dressed in their their blue chinos and their high-vis shirts out the front, and one was an older guy, one was a younger guy. They were both standing by the doggy bag dispenser. Okay, the doggy bag dispenser. The older one was meticulously showing the younger one how to properly refill the doggy bags. And I thought to myself, there is a high sense of value right there. There is a high sense of value and dignity in the one, the older one, showing the younger one how to properly fill the doggy bags. It was just an awesome sight. There was dignity and value in that as he meticulously showed him detail by detail how to fill those doggy bags. You know, when my boys were little, at primary school that they went to, I saw the same high value and dignity at their school. When in the mornings, their principal, young guy in his 30s, dressed in a suit, would stand at the front gate and welcome students and parents every day as they started a new day at school. There's dignity and value in that Dignity and value. What would it look like for you to approach tomorrow with a sense of honour, privilege, believing that you have work to do that matters, that's needed, and that you have a path and you're working your craft. You're working your craft. You're working your workmanship. You're working your poema, your poem out today. The poem of who you are is being recited in everything you do today. What would tomorrow look like if you approached it that way? Who are you? What do you do? After you've finished what do you do, who do you do it for? Who do you do it for? What do they need? How do they change as a result of what you give them? How do they change as a result of what you give them? Got another PowerPoint after that. Okay. Once you've answered those five questions, I want you to look at them and write them into one statement. Write them as one statement that you can read over your life. Here's mine. Here's the answer to those questions. Who are you? I'm, I'm Deborah Candler. What do you do? I help mentor and teach and orient people towards light, life and love. That's my mantra. Who do you do it for? I do it for students. I do it for pastors. I do it for young people and older people. What do they want or need? They need wisdom and guidance and mentoring. How do they change or transform as a result of what you give them? 
they make better choices and they um, see better options and get better outcomes. They see better options, make better choices and get better outcomes. So that's, my, that's the answer to my five questions. And here's how I've written that as a statement. Statement over my life is this. I help orient people so that they are able to see better options, make better choices and get better outcomes to live their best days now. That's my statement. I look at that constantly. I put it on everything that I do because it reminds me that there's a uniqueness on my life to outwork the things that bring me joy. Is that laboursome? Is that, is, that, is that sweat producing? Do I have to like crawl myself out of bed every day to do that thing that heavy? No, it's a joy to my heart to do that. I love it. Born to do it. Love it. Get delight out of it. So I found a good thing. I found a good thing according to who I am. I found it and it becomes my craft and I add dignity to it and I add strength to it and I add delight to it and I continue to build it and I continue to expand it. I help orient people so that they are able to make better op- see better options, make better choices and get better outcomes to live their best days now. So that's my statement um, encompassing those five questions. So once you've answered your five questions, see if you can write them as one statement that you can have as a banner over your life right now. It'll change as the seasons change and as your assignments change and life changes, things change. The statement can change. It's not the one thing, but it is something for now that can become your go-to, can become your encouragement, can become your cheerleader, that can become your reminder, that can become the banner that keeps reorienting you and repositioning you into contexts that are suited to who you are and bring out the best in you. Anyone finished? Okay. We've got a few finished ones. I'm going to ask you, if you've finished, will you come out and read us yours? It's really encouraging. It's almost like testimony time. It's power in a testimony because when your own ears hear your own mouth say those things, your brain is rewired and you're teaching your brain that this is the value in who I am and what I do and it actually is very empowering. That's why testimonies are so empowering. And it actually encourages others as well. So if you're finished, can, can you come out and, and read yours? That'd be awesome. Great. Let's keep, let's keep it moving. Um, I organise and assist people to be able to perform their profession as smoothly and as... I can't read my own writing. ..as possible to improve the oral health of our community. Lovely. There's, a, there's, there's value attached to that. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a cognitive resonance of what she is wired to do with her gifts and strengths and she's found an avenue to use those to impact other people. My personal power phase is the joy of my heart is to lift others as I have felt lifted through the love of Jesus. Great. Awesome. Very good. There's power in that. Because you're a lifter. Someone who has been lifted themselves 
can then become a lifter of others. And if you can recall that on any given day, you don't get taken back to those places that you need lifted from. You go straight back to the lifted place to lift others. There's power in that. Cheryl Sell, my personal power phrase is, I serve people through family, church and school community to bring hope and change and wisdom. I got a little bit from you, which was great. So they can grow into the mature people through better choices. Fabulous. That was well thought through and crafted so that it becomes now the, the why behind the what which is so empowering and so encouraging. That, did that do something for your heart to write that? Did it? Good word, clout. It gave her clout, absolutely. That's another, that's another word of saying that's empowering. You just felt empowered because you recognised the value of what you bring based on who you are and what you're offering in those good works that you've found to do around you. Awesome. Sandy Priceman, I support those in crisis to re-establish a foundation on which to centre themselves to move forward and connect or reconnect with society and faith communities. Awesome. Well done. Does that make you feel empowered? Does that give you a sense of... Clarifies. Clarifies. Good word. Good word. So in clarifying that, mm -hmm. can you pinpoint the value points to that? Can you pinpoint the value that you bring to that task that actually produces impact or transformation in the people that you work with. Yeah, I think it's actually um, allowing them to make a decision to move forward. So actually, because it's more about listening to them okay. to tell their story. Okay. So I guess maybe I need to put that in there somewhere too. So you feel empowered because you are doing something that empowers others. Absolutely. Very good. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Um, Sue Miles, my personal power phrase is, I instill passion and knowledge into young people's lives to make choices that will positively impact their future. Awesome. There's longevity in that statement. So when you wrote that sentence, did you look at that and think generations beyond me, what they will produce? Awesome. So there's value attached to that. So much value attached to that. Anybody else? Everyone's too shy. Yeah, come. Come on, Sandy. Sandy Cusack. I mentor, support and encourage educators so that they are empowered to explore and discover alternate ways to achieve excellent outcomes by providing quality education and care to children. Fantastic. I'm a facilitator. No, you're not, because you just, you do that. Like, that's incredible. I'm a supervisor. No, you're not, because you do that. That's incredible. She, like, educates the educators. That is brilliant. Um, Annie Maloney, I am equipping myself to serve God and all people I may encounter, that they feel encouraged, supported, healed, dignified and loved. Fantastic. Some big statements there, some big phrases there. Great. I'm Joy Durant, bus driver, school bus driver. I help students see each of them are worth being valued and treated as special. She's not just a bus driver. She helps people. Say that again. I help my students see each of themselves are worth being valued 
and treated as special. There's a, here's someone who is valuing their craft. She just went from a bus driver to someone who instills value and worth in every student that steps upon that vehicle to get to school or get home from school. So that is, to me, that is, that is dignity and that is worth to her craft. That is that divine stamp of God on who she is being stamped in the world. She's now redefined her identity based on the worth that she is and the worth and the value that she gives to others. It's changed her identity, which means she changes the environment and it's changed and transformed hearts that change culture. Cultures change when bus drivers cease to see themselves as bus drivers and transformers of human hearts. Yeah? Awesome. Thank you. Are you getting the picture? So we cease to become just a job or a function, and we start to become something that is stamped indelibly with a fingerprint of God, a DNA of God that's on us, whereby we cease doing a job or a function, and we, we become a living poem. We start to, to live out the motion of being a poem in action, being recited by God, by the people in our world, by by our, our own families, by the people we work with. And they're, they're living in this rhythm that we bring, this balance, this symmetry that we bring to the world based on who we are, not based on what someone says we are, not based on a hole that someone else has squeezed us into, but what we find ourselves to do is what we do. What brings us joy are some of those things that Paul said, you find those good things and then you walk in them with the unique poem that you are. Did you like that? Is that good? Are you going to take that home with you and work, work it out? Can I please ask you to do something? Don't just take it and walk home and go, yay, I'm empowered. Go empower someone else with that when you go home. Take that to your connect groups. Take it to your church. Take it to your women's meetings. Take it to your kids' church. Take it to your youth and instill this in them. Instill this worth in them that they have this fingerprint, this DNA of uniqueness on them. And that uniqueness gets stamped in their world on whatever it is that, that they do. Whatever assignment that they've got right now, whether it's putting the rubbish out, whether it's serving behind a counter, whether it's picking up rubbish, whether it's doing dishes, whether it's waiting tables, whether it's starting a business, looking after young children, whatever it is, you have a uniqueness that can be stamped on whatever you do. And when you understand the value of who you are, then that comes out in what you do. And because that comes out in what you do, behaviours over time become accepted and ch culture changes. Interesting, isn't it? But true and very powerful. But it all starts with us understanding our uniqueness, that we're the workmanship of God, his poem, and that we were created in Christ Jesus to walk in all the good things that are around us that we find to do. Amen? Amen. Amen. Every time I get the mic off, Deb, we zap each other all day. <laughs> well, that concludes our afternoon, ladies. It's 2.42. Have you had a great time today? Yes. Fun? Yes. 
and that God has done so much. Do you feel that? Having conversations with you, God's doing good things. So we encourage you to go home and, and do as Deb said, share it with someone.